Hello, everyone, and welcome back to I See What You're Saying, the Discipline Listening Podcast. I'm Michael Reddington, and today it is a privilege to introduce our next guest, Jesse Lindbergh. Jesse is the executive director at Turning Point, an organization solely dedicated to ridding the world of domestic abuse, sexual abuse, and child abuse through advocacy, shelter work, pushing for social change. They do so many things and they go in so many directions. And Jesse has done a wonderful job expanding their mission, expanding their outreach and doing things like you're here today, getting her and her team into prisons in order to work with female victims inside prison walls in order to help them with their recovery and their turnaround. Her and her team do amazing work. And this is another example of exactly what we're trying to do here, inviting people on with perspectives that we might normally think about or have the opportunity to learn from, inviting them to share all that they've learned so we can learn how to apply it to our lives and our conversations as well. Very happy to have Jesse with us today. Before we go any further, we do have to thank our sponsors. Of course, we have HumanTel. If you're interested in furthering your ability to understand what people are likely thinking and feeling as their emotions shift by accurately recognizing their changing facial expressions and nonverbal behavior, please check out humantel.com. And when you go, enter the code INQUASIVE25, I-N-Q-U-A-S-I-V-E-2-5 for a 25% discount off all their online training. Check out Emotional Intelligence Magazine as well. That's ei-magazine.com. And check out their ever-growing list of content, library of content, everything emotional intelligence, podcast interviews, videos, articles, events, so much that they have going on over there. Please check it out. And of course, especially for the professional investigators, check out the internet. National Association of Interviewers at CertifiedInterviewer.com. That organization is dedicated and constantly working to provide the most up-to-date resources and training for elite investigators. Head over there, check out what they're doing, see the resources that they have, and explore if the membership is right for you. So thank you all for taking the time to join us today. I really look forward to sharing this conversation with Jesse. Without further ado, Jesse Lindbergh. Good morning, Jesse. How are you? Good morning. I'm great. How are you? Doing very well. Thank you. I really appreciate you carving out the time to be with us today. Thank you very much. I love it. I'm so excited to be here. Well, thank you. You are, among many things, a very, very busy woman with people looking for your expertise and your time nonstop. So really to make the most of this conversation, what I would love to do is highlight not just the work that you and your team do, which is amazing in and of itself, but the perspective that it takes to do those things, the lessons you and your team have learned from that, and really how those lessons can be applied to conversations in less stressful or less vulnerable circumstances. So to start the conversation, the first question I would like to ask is, to the degree you're comfortable answering, what drove you to commit to a career in victim advocacy? Well, I came by it honestly. I'll just say that. So I went from the corporate world. Um, actually, if you really want to go back, I went from being a child actor and grew up in show business the first uh, you know, 18 years of my life and went to NYU and majored in drama to school of the arts because that was the obvious choice for a girl from New Jersey and did that for two years and then really discovered that that was not what I wanted to do and knew I needed to make a change, but I had no idea what I was going to do. And so I, back before the internet, looked through my big fat college book and uh, had stumbled across Chapel Hill, UNC Chapel Hill, had never even heard of it. 
Um, it's not as popular. Well, I think it is, but you know, it's up north. So we didn't, I don't think it was, it was as much the rage as it is down here, but um, applied and got in. And my friends were like, you need to go there if you get in. That's a good school. So I went and majored in journalism. So really uh, more on the writing side than, you know, broadcasting and, and news and that type of thing. And um, when I graduated, I came to Charlotte because that's where my cousin lived and I loved it and got a job in commercial real estate and did that for eight years and then was blessed with a beautiful little boy that has special needs. And that just completely shifted the trajectory of what I wanted my career to be and kind of what I thought my mission in life was. And so I ended up working for the ARP, which is an organization that serves people with developmental disabilities. And that really was the the start of my nonprofit career. And um, I left there. So it was a lot to do that personally and professionally. I lived it 24-7. I learned a lot. It was obviously my first foray into the nonprofit world and went to work for the YMCA of Greater Charlotte as a fundraiser and then was kind of recruited back to Union County for this executive director role at Turning Point. And it's been such a blessing. And honestly, there are days I just have to, I have to pinch myself that I get to do this work and really be the face of an organization that is that is run by the most incredibly selfish, selfless, passionate people you could ever meet. And I have the best job in the world. I'll just say that. But it gives me a lot of, um, I want to say it, Helps me make sense of my situation in my family that I'm able to now work with people that are so vulnerable and make their lives better and, you know, bring some type of healing and help them make sense of the path that they've been down as well. So it's it's a tremendous blessing and I'm very lucky. Well, and you do an amazing job. Uh, first, I'm a little bit disappointed. This is the first I'm hearing about your acting history. So, um, yeah. Listen, first loves baby in the very first loves commercial. Oh yeah, wow. and mom, she'll talk to you about it all day. <laughs> <laughs> I'm I'm making notes to revisit this. I'm, I'm making notes. Yeah, I had a whole uh, life before this one. <laughs> <laughs> and if, you know, full disclosure, you met my wife before you and I met, and I met your husband before you and I met, kind of along the same times, working with each other separately. Um, and you brought your family up. I I certainly wasn't going to go there, uh, but you did. And I'm thankful that you did. And for me, I feel like, especially with what you do, and you know, I've met your family, and you you are all amazing as a unit together. The amount of, and these words get thrown around so much today, but the amount of authenticity and the amount of empathy and the amount of real experience that that allows you to bring into your professional conversations has to have a significant impact on your ability to connect with people who have never had someone be able to connect with them before. Uh, oh my gosh. Yeah. And I think it's, it teaches, it brings, first of all, perspective for me that I didn't have before. If you ask my husband, he'll say that Bernie just made us better people. You know, he really did. And I attribute everything that I am today in this work, you know, to really be in, in a, you know, a dream role because of my child. If I, my future was handed to me on a silver platter the day that that little boy was born. Um, but I do think it's helpful that it, it helps other people realize that everybody's got their crosses to bear. Everybody's got something that is challenging. And on the days that I think that our life is so challenging, you know, I'll look at another child from Bernie's classroom, right? That's in a wheelchair, that's on a feeding tube. 
I'm not in that situation, you know? And so I do think I can offer that level of perspective to people that no matter what you've been through, you are still blessed. Find the blessings every day and find the strength to, you know, to heal and move on and just know that you're not alone. Everybody's suffering with something. It's an amazing perspective. I don't, I don't have the words to eloquently put that to put that together. Um, to not use the world's cleanest segue, I must confess, I recently was was teaching a class and it was a leadership focused class. And I've been asked a question about interrogation, which, which is my background. And one of the examples I gave was that I truly believe that the vast majority of people, my former teammates and I had to interrogate were good people who made a decision they wouldn't have made had they not been facing the circumstances or challenges that they were experiencing in that moment. There were a few that I have no doubt that would have found themselves down that path no matter what. But I, I really believe that most of them got dealt a hand and for whatever reason or set of reasons chose to play it the way they did that led for us to have to sit down and have a conversation. And as an interviewer, when you can sit back and realize that it's not this, it's not, yes, they're responsible for their actions, but they made this decision because of their perception based on the situation they were in. That helps us recalibrate and connect with people at a deeper level in a way that they weren't anticipating. And for you to be able to do that specifically with the victims that you work with based on your family situation and the unbelievable perspective that that gives you. And I've used the word already. I don't have another one. Amazing. So to segue from there and continue, you and your team talk to vulnerable people all day long. Women, children who have suffered through unspeakable, unimaginable circumstances, other advocates, other family members, other people that might be involved in, in the situation. So from your perspective, what have you and your team learned about the most essential aspects of connecting with the most vulnerable people? Well, you really just touched on it with what you were saying uh, when you did your interviews. It's being what we call kind of it's it's a buzz thing in the nonprofit sphere, but being trauma informed. When you're speaking to somebody, we all day, every day, there's people that we serve that have made horrible decisions and that are still making horrible decisions. And there are days that the clients that we serve are really challenging in the shelter and they give our team a run for their money. And it, it really takes the professionalism and the passion and the dedication to this work to approach those situations, understanding that these people that we're serving are traumatized and they have been living in fight or flight mode. They have been isolated. They have been, I mean, the abuse, the abuse is like the physical abuse is really the least of it. You know, it's really a lot of the, the mental and the, the, financial and alienation that, that from their family and their support system, all of that is really what drives people to make really poor decisions. And that actually is why, and I know we'll get to this later, why we started, why I want to start this jail outreach program. Because if you actually look into the backgrounds of the people, the women that are incarcerated, uh, probably upwards of over 90% of them have a history of domestic violence, of sexual abuse, of child abuse. And so Understanding that we approach our clients with a level of understanding and empathy before anything and really knowing that they have been through hell and back 
And that is what drives behaviors. And that is what is driving the choices that they're making. If it's parenting choices that they're making in our shelter, um, you can always, for the most part, and I do agree with you, some people are just not good people, right? But I think that that's rare. I don't think that that's the case the majority of the time. Um, and so being trauma-informed for our, our staff is the number one most important thing we can do. Um, and understanding, too, that people react to trauma in a different way. We have people laughing that have just been beat up, right? Because they, that's how some people respond to trauma. And that's probably one of the worst things is that people look for patterns with people. And there are patterns, right? But somebody will respond to trauma much differently than somebody else. And so a lot of the time victims don't get taken seriously because they don't respond in the way that people assume they should. They're not hysterical crying. You know, we see that a lot with sexual assault victims as well. They sometimes are not, you know, they're they're shut down. They're not crying. They're not really even remembering what happened. All of that is normal. And you cannot jump to any conclusions and you can't paint everybody with the same brush because you will really miss the mark on serving them in the best way. I am so, I hate to use the word happy in this conversation. That doesn't feel appropriate. I am so happy to hear you say that. Again, coming from an investigative background and even working more on the business side at this point, time and time and time again, we run into people who make blanket judgments on how they believe others should react in a given situation based on their own life experience or based on the myths that have been propagated for decades to centuries, depending on the situation. Such great examples. People might react to trauma with laughter, with humor. People might react to trauma by almost becoming catatonic, like just completely shutting down. People might react by becoming angry. People might react by blaming themselves and somehow trying to say, well, I, I deserve this for some reason, which is complete and total BS. We know that. Um, yeah. Some might become hysterical, like you said. And number one, having the situational awareness to understand that all of those things are indicative of somebody who experienced trauma not making those initial judgments and then developing the skill set through trauma-informed interview process and, and other processes to be able to work your way through some of those barriers to connect with those people. I don't know how many investigators, advocates develop that skill set. So I mean, that's you're talking about some some really impressive perspectives that you and your team have developed. Well, and if you look at domestic violence survivors, why why does it take an average of seven times for somebody to leave for good? It's because there has been, you know, an abuser is not dumb. They're going to plant little seeds over the years to make that person think that they are, you know, the gaslighting thing is a whole other crazy level of, of you know, mental abuse, but um, that it is their fault and that they deserve it somehow and that they are the the sole reason why they're getting abused is because of something that they've done or said. And that is what, that's what abusers do. It's so manipulative. And so by the time they get to us, we're trying to undo years of, of mental abuse. And it's not normal to live in a way that you fear for your safety and fear for your children. And that you've been told over and over that your children are going to get taken away. If you, if you say something, or if you try to leave, um, you it takes so much to 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 really get those years of abuse you know out of the forefront of somebody's mind and getting them into a place where they can actually start to heal and start to love themselves and 
So again, it causes people to do really crazy things. And, you know, it's, it's, it's tough for our team because you want to be frustrated. You know, you want to say, oh my gosh, you like, they become almost abusive as well, you know, Mm -hmm. to their kids, to our staff. And it's, you know, it's, they're all of a sudden developing a level of freedom that they've never had. And so, you know, it kind of, the roles are, are reversed when they get here. And so it's, it's hard. It's very hard. That's another, I'm sorry. I just, I'm supposed to interview for a living. I just cut you off. I no, you're good. <laughs> <laughs> um, but that's another great point. When the hammer, I'm sorry, when the nail becomes the hammer. So when somebody, I mean, this is perhaps the worst example of it, but if somebody has a job and they're treated terrible by their boss, and now they have a chance to talk to a customer, it's their chance to be the hammer. So they're going to act the same way. If somebody has been abused by others and now they have a chance to be in control, they're in the power position in the conversation. Now they have the ability to be the hammer. And again, that comes down to that situational awareness. They're not angry with you and your team. I would guess having never been in one of these conversations with you, that that's one of the bricks that has to be chipped away in the wall, like the stages in the conversation that people go through before they begin to trust and start opening up. So a question that I would love some insight into is what do you and your team do to begin to build trust with people who have no reason to trust another human being on the planet? Well, the first thing you do is believe them, believe everything they say. And that is, that's also with children, you know, a child, the outcome from a child disclosing abuse of any kind is completely reliant on the initial reaction that they get from who they first told. Mm -hmm. So believing them is number one and building them up so that they understand that whatever they've endured, everything that they've been told is not true. And The other big thing is empowering them. We can't do stuff for them. They need to make the choice. It's why when somebody calls our shelter and says, hey, I have a friend. They need, you know, they need to come there. No, they have to call us themselves. They've got to make that choice because the best thing you can do to gain that all the power and control that you've lost over your life living with an abuser is to give them that power back. So your first thing is you're going to make a phone call to the shelter And we empower them to make the right choices. We guide them, but we don't tell them what to do. We can't tell them what to do, you know? So we want them to make the right choices, but they're going to make that that decision. Um, And so that's the biggest thing is the believing and then trying to give them some power back in their lives so that they can start making, you know, the the small steps towards healing. Um, And I want to touch on something that you just talked about um, because I think it's really fascinating when you're talking about the hammer and the nail. One of the things that we do here at Turning Point is uh, we really try to make sure that our team is sensitive to every culture and every lens through which somebody's viewing life when they come to see us. And so we have, there's a nonprofit in Raleigh that actually serves South Asian survivors of domestic violence. And, you know, that's a very, those countries are very still patriarchal and there's a a very high level of abuse sometimes, Um, not to, of course, not to, not to you know, assume that everybody's living that when they're in that culture. But it is very prevalent. I'll just say that. And one of the things in that society is that not only is the husband abusive, but his mother is abusive to the wife. So the mother-in-law is a perpetrator of abuse against the daughter. And then when that daughter becomes a mom and she 
is now her son gets married to a, a little girl. She is now an abuser as well. And it's crazy, that cycle that just never ends, just over and over. And it's like that large generational abuse. And it's unreal to see how these women suffer at the hands of their mother alone, their husband, and then they turn around and do it, do the exact same thing when they become a mother alone. And I just found that it's very fascinating and tragic as well. Both. And you nailed it. Learn behavior. Now it's my role. Now it's my turn. This is how I'm supposed to act in this situation. And you likely know this better than me. Oh, you certainly know this better than me through your work. The way our brains compartmentalize pain. So we go through something, we internalize it, we fight through it. Our brain has a crazy way of putting things away so we don't remember exactly how how hard how bad that hurt, exactly what it felt like, exactly what it experienced for us. Yeah. So now when it's in that situation, to use it as an analogy, when somebody else gets to almost graduate to play that role, they likely don't have a clear recollection. They remember it wasn't fun. They remember that it hurt. They remember they didn't enjoy it, but they don't remember likely the details or they don't have that um, visceral pain left to experience. So it makes it easier for them to turn around and perpetuate the behavior. Absolutely. And same thing with children, you know, children who witness violence and who are abused are way more likely to be perpetrators of abuse as adults. And, you know, you don't know what you don't know. We say that all the time in this business. You don't know what you don't know. And so if all you've seen and witnessed is violence and anger and substance abuse and all those things, you think that that's normal. And when we go into high schools to do our teen dating violence, I cannot even tell you how many kids you see light bulbs going off everywhere because kids think that abuse and stalking and now with technology and tracking people on your phones and all this stuff is normal. They think that's totally normal and they cannot wrap their brains run around the fact that we say that that's no, that's not normal. They shouldn't know all your passwords. They shouldn't need to know where you are all day. You know, they shouldn't need to see where your car is parked. That's none of that is normal. And it's just, it's so scary how before technology, all of that would have been really seen as stalking, but now it's, Every, it's normal for kids. Every single day, they think that that's normal. That you should know where somebody's, where your boyfriend's car is at all times. You know, it's just, it's crazy. And I don't know how we're going to, I don't think we can ever reel that back in again, unfortunately. Now, yeah, that's a whole nother conversation that yeah. I would be scared to get into, but I'm with you. And I I remember when my investigation career first started, learning how disassociate, like physical disassociation helps people rationalize behavior. So somebody who would likely never rob a bank or never go into a cash register at a store they worked with and take the money or never go into their mom's handbag and take the money might commit credit card fraud because that, that credit card gives them enough, and especially once the internet internet transactions became a regular thing, using a credit card number over the internet disassociates them enough that it's easier for them to rationalize. So yeah. for these girlfriends or boyfriends, if you ask them, is it okay to follow your boyfriend or girlfriend around? Is it, for you to, is it okay to always be standing over their shoulder? Is it okay for you to follow them everywhere they go? They probably, because you'd be like, of course not, that's crazy. But is it okay to track them with technology? Well, yeah, we all do. Because again, that disassociation yeah. creates that that separation. So, I mean, now we're diving down psychology rabbit holes and, and, and whatnot, but it's scary. And as parents of young sons, I mean, it's it's all the way scary, not just in romantic relationships, but friendships. And even as, 
you know, Gabe is getting involved in different groups and now there's coaches involved and other parents involved. It's, you know, and when he has an investigator and an HR professional for a dad there, you know, there's, there's no, or for dad and mom, excuse me, Brooke's not his dad, <laughs> but, but you know, the, yeah, the, the conversations that we have, but to recover from that slip up when these victims do eventually open up. And I imagine there's tests. I imagine they're testing you and your team throughout the process, whether they are becoming angry, whether they are holding back. I imagine there's layers of tests throughout multiple conversations to really see, are you who you say you are? Are you listening the way you claim to be? Can you do the things you claim to do? And for each person, it's likely going to be different. But after you and your team have passed these series of tests, they eventually begin to open up. What type of reactions do you see from people? How do you see them change once they realize that you are actually listening to them? Well, and let's touch on the counseling. Obviously, our counselors is, you know, that component is critical to getting to the other side of this. And, you know, what's really challenging, I think, is we do get to a really good place with a lot of with our clients and have a tremendous success rate and they will go back to their abuser. So um, that's all part of the cycle and that's part of it. And then we know that and it's, it's normal. So that's, you know, particularly discouraging to our team when we like, are like, Oh my gosh, she's doing so well. She's and then all of a sudden she goes back to her abuser. But we, we understand that. And she will be welcome back with open arms when, when she's ready. But I think that I say this all the time and it's a little bit cliche, but boy, what this is, when we get to the other side of it, it, it is how, when people say, I don't know how you do what you do. How do you do your work? Well, because we see the other side of it. We see how good people feel about themselves when all of a sudden they realize, oh my gosh, I'm healing and I'm getting out of this. And these people love me and they care about me. And you're now understanding what is normal, what's not normal. It's not your fault, especially with kiddos. My gosh, you've got to tell them it's not their fault. We, we hammer that into them because they instantly think it's their fault and they're ashamed and same thing with domestic violence and sexual assault survivors it's there's so much shame and stigma and isolation that comes with these crimes that when they get to a place where all of a sudden they're like oh my god i'm i'm doing this i'm healing i'm starting to understand what happened to me and why it happened and all the patterns of you know whatever trauma has However, it's manifested in me that's caused me to do bad things or whatever it looks like. It is the coolest thing to see when somebody all of a sudden gets their feet under them and knows what they need to do to heal and to be independent. And it's 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 the reason it's the shot in the arm that we need every day to keep doing what we're doing. Um, there is there's there's an epiphany for a lot of people here. And it happens differently for everybody. It might happen after two weeks for one lady and a year for another one. Um, but that also depends on where they were when they got here. Some people literally haven't had access to a bank account, to a job, to no support system. And then other people are a little more well, you know, well established. And so that healing journey is different for everybody. But um, yeah, it is. And it's a very cool thing to see. And it it really, you know, it lets you know that the human spirit is alive and well. And healing is possible. And there's some really resilient people in this world. Um, and I'll just say to you for the kids, when when our child abuse victims testify in court um, or involved or involved in a judicial process at all, we throw them a hero party 
And we basically take everything that they love. Um, if it's, we've had karaoke machines, we've had chicken tenders, we've had a horse themed cakes, you know, whatever it is. And it's like truly getting, it's like crossing over the bridge to their, a new chapter in their life. And it is the coolest thing to see. Um, it takes your breath away. It's incredible. That's amazing. The reward in, in the, the symbolism of, of that type of event. Yeah. When these epiphanies happen, I'm sure they don't always happen right in front of you and your team. They happen over a period of time or you know, they might even happen in a conversation with somebody else and then they come back to you. How do how does your team experience their change in communication once they've had that epiphany, the way they communicate, also even the way that they show up once they've had that epiphany and that bond has been established? Well, I think it goes from you're talking to them as a survivor and not a victim anymore. And there's a shift that happens when somebody's mind goes from I'm a victim to I'm a survivor. And I think inherently because our team has been doing this for so long, that shift just kind of happens organically. I mean, I don't think that's a great explanation, but it is, it's just in the way. And I think it's in the way that that person talks back to us too. It's, you know, there's not, there's not this, I mean, they're in a shell, they're, you know, just victimized, abused. And then all of a sudden they start blossoming in front of your eyes. And I think it just inherently changes the way you communicate. But I do think when we get into that victim versus survivor mindset, um, I think that changes, that changes how we approach our clients and how we work with them. And that's a great explanation. Are there specific verbiage your team uses or specific techniques they use to try to help somebody see themselves as a survivor as opposed to a victim? Or is that something that we try to let the client work themselves through? Well, I think a lot of that happens in counseling. Um, <clears throat> I think that that's, that's a big piece of it is, you know, you can't really get over that hurdle and get to that survivor mode without professional counseling because there's so many layers to peel back before you can get there um, for a lot of people. So um, I think, wait, what was your question? <laughs> <laughs> I'm supposed to remember the questions I ask you, what type of conversation well, is this? Well, I was thinking about what, what Noemi does in there. Are there, specific, like, yeah. are there specific phrases or techniques that your team uses to help people? And the, the counseling bridge is important to mm -hmm. highlight. Yeah. That your team uses to help encourage people to see themselves as survivors as opposed to victims or is that typically a client-led journey where we're trying we allow them the opportunity to lead themselves down that path and support them along the way yeah i think we we definitely allow them to to guide us on their path on their healing journey but we are empowering them and kind of knocking all the barriers out of the way in okay. front of them you know and the other thing is you're it's so it's so critical that people be made whole in every way before they can heal. So you look at a shelter and you're like, oh, well, yeah, you obviously feed them. And you're like, no, no, no. You have no idea how important those basic necessities are. Because until you are whole in the most basic ways, you can't, you can't heal. If you don't have a car, if you don't have, if you can't put gas in your car, if you can't get your medication, if you don't have your birth certificate, like all those little things that we take for granted, um, those are the things, those are the barriers that we're kind of knocking out of the way. We're walking ahead of them being like, okay, let's move this. No worry about food insecurity. Okay, don't worry about your work uniform. Don't worry about a book bag for your kid. 
You know, don't worry about your child's lunch during the day. If we can knock all those out of the way, then they're going to, they're leading us, but we're just empowering them and helping to, you know, to remove the obstacles that might hinder them from really healing and, and really getting to the other side. And all those things are super important from the outside looking in to me, it sounds like both very in a very real way, but also in a, in a more of a perception way as well, you're giving them their identity back. Maybe oh, an yeah. identity that they've never had. Oh, I, that, yeah, for sure. And also with a lot of that healing comes mending relationships too, because abusers are really good at alienating you from from your support system. So that abuser is the only, the only support system that you have. And so there's a lot of that too. And I think that attributes to the healing as well is all of a sudden now this, this girl's back in touch with her mom and back in touch with her best friends. And none of that, none of that healing is possible without those, those types of, um, of interactions that all of a sudden you can have that you, that you were forbidden from having, um, under your abuser. So yeah, it's, it's, um, it's so important just to empower them to make their own choices. Even if they're bad choices, we have to let them do that so they can get to the other side of it. But, um, yeah, there's, it's so deep. (laughs) So it's so (laughs) complex. Um, what abuse and violence does to people. It's really, um, it's shocking. And again, that's why we went into the jails because so much of what happens to these ladies is done at the force um, and coercion of their abusers that we knew we had to step in. Which I would love to get to in just a second. I promise we're going to leave plenty right, of time for that. Back to it because I'm so proud of it. No, and you are, and you should be. And that's going to be a, a big part of this conversation. I promise. And I will, I, you had told me about it earlier, but I'm also going to share how I was reminded about it. Cause I thought it was in my twisted sense of humor, kind of a funny, it, I had a funny conversation that led to it, which I don't think, you know, I had, but we'll get back to that in just a second. Okay. Um, the tragic complexity of literally what many abusers will do is they'll break somebody down. They'll break them down to nothing and then remold them into the victim that they need them to be to satisfy the abuser's self-image. And when we talk about, for my business, when we talk about any type of communication, leadership, interviewing, business development, negotiation, whatever, so much of that wraps around helping somebody protect their self-image. What you're talking about is actually helping somebody or empowering them to build a self-image they've never had. So once they have their self-image, they can reclaim their life around their new self-image. And I don't have the psychology degrees or the time to get into how critically important that is, but that's, I mean, that's the sun that all of these planets of empowerment and development and escape are going to revolve around. So one last question before we get into, before we talk about going to jail, one last question. (laughs) What have you learned? You said something amazing earlier what you've learned from Brody and give, let's give Treg some credit as well. What you've learned from Brody and Treg that you carry into your career and how that makes you better. What have you learned from talking and working with so many victims and so many families that you, whether consciously or unconsciously carry into your other professional conversations and family conversations that has proved helpful. Mm. Oh man, that's a good one. Well, I think, I mean, it's kind of a, a no-brainer answer, but the empathy. I, I mean, you cannot approach this work 
without a level of empathy. And all of a sudden it's changed how I speak to people. I don't know. I just, I'm always looking for what's behind what they're saying. And so I'm always looking for, well, why would they say that? Not, oh my gosh, I can't believe they said that. Well, why? I wonder why, like what in their heart is causing them to say that, you know? And I think that that's just, that all goes back to that um, trauma-informed lens that we're so used, just embedded in our minds now when you do this work. Um, And that's, I would say that's just empathy. I don't know. I feel like being, not to shame people from Jersey, but I feel like there's Jersey people, like I was so... No, it's just so not, you know, in New York City, you don't make eye contact with people. You you just don't even like, don't look at me, don't talk to me. And when I moved down here, people are like waving to me in my neighborhood. And I'm like, no, you don't talk to me. Like, why are you waving at me? Now, all of a sudden, I'm like, oh, I just, it's just changed me for the better in every way. But, but I think just approaching everybody with um, understanding and, you know, what's their journey been like? What's their life been like? How was their day yesterday? All of that feeds into who they are today and what they're saying to me at this very moment. And so I think I'm just very, very, very mindful of that. And I also read a lot of body language because I have a nonverbal child and I think I've become very adept at reading body language and having, using my like gut instinct, um, because I have to with Brody all the time. No doubt. No doubt. Um, I am, I know you and I have talked about this before, but I'm a little bit embarrassed to even bring it up in front of you. But my first career was in special education and I worked with children and adults who were nonverbal. Now I did it for a couple of years as a career. You live it every day as a mother. So it's important to highlight the difference there. I truly believe that a lot of my ability to understand what other people are thinking by watching their reactions unknowingly started there working with adults who were born normal but survivors of abuse and lost their ability to speak children who were born with various situations that they never had the ability to speak or not speak the way you and i you know normally would so when when i hear people myself included when i hear people talk about how good they are at reading body language my first reaction is are we and that includes me too i'm in a glass house throwing stones when i hear a mom of a nonverbal child say I pay a lot of attention to body language. I have no doubt that the amount of time you've spent, you have a greater level of contextual awareness and accuracy in your evaluations because of that. And so when people ask me about you know, people who are great at persuasion, well, a lot of times, honestly, the criminals are the best because their life depends on it. Like they have to get it right and get it right the first time. So believe it or not, they might actually be better about it. Um, and. I can't let this conversation pass with, pass without mentioning, I'm sure, as a famous child actor, you didn't want anybody bothering you, whether you were walking down the streets of NYC or moving into your, your quiet new neighborhood. So we'll, we'll, we'll respect you there. Yeah, but thank I, you. I lived in Jersey for three and a half years. I lived outside Chicago. I grew up in the greater Boston area. So I, when I go back to visit those places now, I feel a level of intensity that was just normal living there. Yeah, but I, I feel it now when I when Brooke and I moved into our house, literally the first weekend we were there, our neighbor who we had never said a single word to pulls up in front of us, rolls down his window and says, hey, welcome to the neighborhood. Just so you know, I'm going to be away all week. So if you see anybody in my house, call the cops. I literally looked at my wife. I'm like, people tell us when they're leaving town here, like I would go out of my way to camouflage right. that town any way that I've left. Right. Before. Like, I want this little anyway. Yeah, totally different. But that, that night, you get shot for doing that up north. 
Yes. <laughs> or at least you come back and there's nothing left in your house. That's right. That's right. Um, but that that curious empathy that you mentioned and that situational awareness that you mentioned is important. And we're talking today about trauma at a very real level. But often what people experience as trauma can be momentary, can be situational, and that can impact how they listen, how they communicate, how they perceive what we're doing. And your experience with that to allow, as my wife would say, to allow for that grace in the conversation. Wait a minute, where are they coming from? How's that impacting this is is really important. So let's get to going to jail. I don't know how many people I can have this conversation with. So a while ago, years ago, I think you told me when you were working on this initiative and it sounded amazing at the time, but just time and space, it had slipped my mind until last year when I ran into you in an awards banquet and you were up, you and your organization were up against two other wonderful organizations. Oh my gosh, yeah. Amazing organizations that do great work for a nonprofit award. And there were videos of each of the organizations leading up to the award. And I'm sitting next to my friend Brett watching this whole thing and your video is up and played and, you know, we have a relationship. So obviously I'm cheering for you. It was a great video talking about the jail work that you did. And then the next video that comes up was from a nonprofit that breeds rescue dogs and they do amazing work, amazing work in national. Even stand a chance. (laughs) Literally. And so in their video, they've got puppies. Yeah. And I literally lean over to Brett and I'm like, dude, Jesse's in trouble. Yeah. Mic drop. Puppies. He's like, he's like, yeah. He's like, what do you mean? I'm like, I'm pretty sure puppies are undefeated. Of course. And now everybody in our table is laughing during this like really deep nonprofit. Like, we're gonna get thrown out. And then when you won and I was done cheering for you, I looked at Brett and I said, That literally has to be the first L a puppy has ever taken. So, so not only congratulations to you for the amazing work that you do, but for congratulations for being the first one ever to knock off a puppy from an award like that. I don't think that has ever happened before. No, no, I was shocked. I was as shocked as everybody else. And I even said it in my acceptance speech. I was like, I puppies. I don't know what else to say. Like we're, it it was like, you would have thought we won an Oscar. We were so excited about that award. (laughs) I I do recall some, some joyous uh, screaming, if you will. Oh yeah. your table when that was it might have been the wine also because we were like just drinking because i was like we're not gonna win (laughs) (laughs) oh wait now i have to go up there i should have thought this through yeah and i don't script myself so i wasn't preparing any type of speech well and you gave a great speech especially under the circumstances let's get to that so tell us a little bit about the program what did you do and to even start where did the idea come from well so the idea came from the fact that when you take over as the executive director for a nonprofit, the first thing everybody's asking you is, what's your vision? What are you going to do differently? You know, where are you taking this agency? And it's a lot of pressure. And I really, I wanted it to happen organically, that I wasn't going to just pick something so I can say, I'm adding a new program and this is my vision. It was really, I wanted it to be authentic. And so I went to a conference And I want to say it was my first year here in 2018. Um, I went to several conferences. um, And there was just an overarching message that I felt that was what was sticking with me at every conference was people who have been incarcerated and the incredibly high rates of abuse of domestic violence and sexual assault and child abuse for people who are incarcerated and particularly women. And 
the the final conference that I went to where I was like, oh, this is it, was it was a lady that um, runs a, a home in California for um, people who women who have been incarcerated to try to get them, you know, to the other side once they once they get out of prison. And her story was that she was incarcerated because she was sexually abused as a child. And then throughout her life, she was in and out of jail, you know, because she experienced trauma after trauma and then was committing crimes because she was in fight or flight mode for her entire life. She was in an abusive childhood. And it just, I don't know. I just thought to myself, how, how are we, it's kind of illogical that we're locking people up and not providing any interventions and then expecting something different when they get out. And it just, it was illogical to me. And I'm like, we're just setting them up for failure, you know? And even if you look at kids now who are not in jail, teens who are in these horrible scenarios um, as children in their homes, and you're like, are we all going to be scratching our heads someday when they're in jail? Because we're not helping them. We're setting them up for failure. And I just found it to be, and again, this isn't to say that everybody in jail is, traumatized and amazing people who, you know, whatever, there's some bad, obviously there's bad actors everywhere, but I found it to be almost like cruel that all we're actually doing is re-victimizing them because they've already been through so much in their lives and we're not helping them by locking them up. All we're doing is really re-victimizing them and then expecting magically that their life's going to be different when they get out. And so um, I didn't even know where to start, honestly. And I, um, I started making some contacts. There's an amazing organization in Charlotte that does um, more type of kind of like what we're doing. Well, yeah, I'm trying, this has been a long time ago, but yeah, they do something similar in the jails, um, Change Choices is the name of the organization. And that executive director at the time was nice enough to meet with me. I just randomly called her and I was like, where do I even start? with this because I want to get into those jails. We're the right people to do it. And of course, we're the only victim services provider in Indian County. So who else is going to do it? You know? Um, and she connected us with a, a more um, faith-based organization that goes into the jail and does, you know, more faith-based activities with them. And I was like, well, I think that's amazing and that helps people. Right. But I think we need to get a more clinical side to it too for the counseling. And so we ended up partnering with that organization, um, Safer Communities, to kind of provide that that more professional counseling piece to supplement what they were doing from the faith-based perspective. And so, of course, I know I mentioned this in my acceptance speech, my team, because they're the most amazing human beings that have ever lived. I'm like, you know what, you guys? I think we need to start providing services in the jail. And they were all like, cool, okay, let's do it. You know, like no hesitation. They're going into the jail, getting trained, how to, you know, what you're not supposed to do, all the million things you're not supposed to do. It's really scary. If you bring your cell phone, incidentally, in the jail, you will go to jail for six months. You're never allowed to have your cell phone in the jail. And that happened because, it's just a total side story, but uh, some volunteer was in the jail. And, you know, of course, prisoners are, you know, when you're, when you're desperate, you can be very um, manipulative and convincing. And they, the guy convinced her to let him have his her phone because he wanted to call his mom. And he ended up calling a hit on a cop who had arrested him. And the cop was killed. Oh, my goodness. That happened in Union County. So 
they, the way they phrase it is, if you have a cell phone here, you'll be a resident for six months. And I'm like, okay, duly noted. I'll leave my cell phone in the car. So gotcha. it was very overwhelming. But anyway, um, we started with not just the women, but also also youth in the jail. Um, now we've you know raised the age on a lot of crimes, so there's not really as many youth in the jail. But we were doing both. We were bringing our children's program coordinator here, who does the work with the children who are um, staying in the shelter, and then also out of shelter clients. And then um, also the ladies in the jail. And then over the years, it's kind of morphed into new partnerships. So now we're working with kids whose parents are incarcerated because, you know, there's a big history there. So trying to intervene um, as early as we can for those kiddos as well. So um, our our counselor goes into the jail. She does group counseling sessions. She does really, really good, um, really incredible, like reflective type activities with them and it is, if you read, in fact, for the video, we didn't end up getting to use any of it, but we did have the jail, the inmates write some testimonies about what it's meant for them. And it was, oh my gosh, it was so overwhelming and amazing. We're changing lives. And I, I really, I'm not patting us on the back. I'm like being very direct and real that we're changing lives. And There's we're no doubt. changing the course of these women's lives when they get out of jail. There's no doubt. Do you have any of those testimonials published anywhere like for people to see we need to yeah yeah for sure for yeah. sure the message is there i can can only imagine how impactful they are yeah so when what was the initial reaction i know you weren't there for all of these conversations of course yeah. what was the initial reaction that the inmates had towards your team when they went in here's the thing they when you're in jail this is kind of the other one of the other things that i why i wanted to do it can you imagine just you're in jail you've been through so much you've been through so much trauma throughout your lifetime and now you're locked away and one can only assume that nobody cares about you that society doesn't care about you that you are forgotten um that somehow you are deserving of being in jail and that everything that has happened to you throughout your lifetime is your fault and you deserve to be where you are. And I just can't fathom how anybody can get to a better, better place in their life if that's how they view themselves and their situation. And so the first thing is not even necessarily the professional counseling. It's the human, the humanity of it. This person, these people are coming in to see me because they care about me. And then the world hasn't forgotten me. And that I'm not alone. And that's the initial reaction. Um, not as much like you, we get to the healing later and how effective counseling is for that, for victims of sexual assault and domestic violence. But the, the first and foremost is, wow, I'm not forgotten. And somebody does care about me. And if we did nothing else, if we never even counseled them, I think that would make a difference, you know? But we, we take it a step further, so... There's no doubt that that would make a difference. And it ties back into something you talked about before, giving people their identity back, allowing them to see themselves as valuable human beings first. And then after that, hopefully leading them and empowering them to go through that healing process. Yeah. And, and you know, the reason we should care about this is because if you don't care about it at all, if you want to just assume all prisoners are bad people. And again, I would never say that they're not. Of course, there's bad people in jail that deserve to be in jail. But think about just from your, just from a resources standpoint, right? If you look at law enforcement and incarceration, how much it costs a society to keep people incarcerated. Just if you look at recidivism rate, how this will impact that 
you know, if you don't care about it for any other reason, at least care about it for that, you know, and what it does for our community. Amen. I spoke at an event last year and one of the other speakers was a politician. I was in Georgia, was a Georgia politician. And a key component of his speech ties into what you're talking about. It wasn't about incarceration and recidivism, but it was about schools and people who would invest because it was a CEOs and business owners were basically the audience. So these people would often invest in the private schools and the charter schools that their kids went to or the neighborhood schools that their kids or the sports teams that their kids or the theater groups that their kids were involved in. But they don't always invest. Many of them do, but a lot of them don't always invest in other public school systems or other areas that their kids aren't directly involved in. And his basic speech was, "Okay, don't. But where are those kids going to work? How are those kids going to contribute to society? Where are you going to need your labor force from? Who are your kids going to work with? Who are your kids going to hang out with? Who are your kids going to go need to get services from? Who's going to provide those services? So and I'm doing a horrible job quickly summarizing, which was a very eloquent 60 plus minute presentation. But that per, that ripple effect or that butterfly effect, when you think about it, when you take the time to make it obvious that you view somebody as a human being, when you take the time to make it obvious that we understand that sure, there's personal responsibility layered in here, but there's also real respect for the context, for the situations that people have been through, for the impact it's had on their decisions and behavior, and using that to help rebuild how they see themselves, to build that trust, to get them to open up and lead them to the other side. It's it's all critical. And if they're humans, like that's the thing. We're, it, you know, we, a few years ago, this is kind of an interesting story and jail related, so I'll just touch on it really quickly because I will okay, tell you, it's one, one of the most impactful, probably, things I've ever done in my nonprofit career. Um, there was a, a maximum security prison in the next county over at um, Lanesboro Correctional Facility. So at the time, I think it's a women's prison now, but back in the day, I think it was like 2018, 19, um, we went, they, I guess the guys in the jail, this is, again, maximum security prison, they um, pooled their whatever money they made from working in the jail um, or if they had any, you know, outside side hustles, however they were making money. It was all like legit the way they were making it. But they pooled their money to give to three different charities. And we were one of them. One of them was the Special Olympics, which I was instantly like, oh, my God, can this get any better? Is my agency on the Special Olympics? And one more. And so it was $2,500 for us. It was a lot of money. And they invited us to come speak and have lunch with the prisoners to say thank you. And I was like, oh, like that's a little scary. But I was like, I think we should do it. I think it's really generous. And the fact that they selected us is amazing. And let's go say thank you. So my coworker and I went, it was terrifying. You know, I got yelled at, not to be like graphic on your podcast, but like I'm an underwire bra on. I got yelled at for that by the lady. I was terrified. And every door you go in, it's like slam. It was straight out of a movie. Every door behind you is slamming. And it was, I was like, what have we done to come in here? So we go in there and there's like a big, they've created this big lunch. It's, you know, the guys had set up tablecloths and we were the only nonprofit to show up to say thank you. And I was terrified but I got up there like, do you want to say a few words? And I got up there and I spoke and it was the most overwhelming. But it was like in that moment, I, these things, I just realized these are just human. They're men. They've made poor choices. And again, do a lot of them deserve to be in jail? Yeah. I mean, it was maximum security. So it was murderers and whatever else. But 
I was so overwhelmed by my sense of sympathy for these guys and the fact that these are humans who are now probably going to be in jail for the rest of their lives and how respectful they were. They wouldn't even make eye contact with me when I talked to them. They're like, yes, ma'am. Yes, ma'am. Just so kind and so grateful that we were there. And it just, I'm sure that that attributed to my desire to do this, this jail program too. And I'm actually just having that realization right this very second. <laughs> I never pieced that together until right now. And now, you know, yeah, it was one of the most overwhelming experiences I've ever had. And it taught me um, just to, to see through what people may, you know, just that, that initial, like, oh my God, you're all murderers. I'm terrified. There's going to be a riot. We're all going to get killed. Like that's what I was thinking initially when I went in there. Um, and I left with such an appreciation for humanity and our ability to be kind and to reach out to people and to um, to step up when nobody else wants to. Time after time after time, just in my career, realizing what people are willing to tell you and what they're willing to do for you when you are the first person who's treated them like a human being. And yeah. you and your team experience that on a much greater level, much more frequently with people who've been in far worse situations than most almost entirely of, of what I dealt with in my career. So where do you take this program next? I know you, you're not settling. Where, what have you, where are you taking, what you've learned, your success here, where are you going with it? Well, it's interesting because I think initially our thought was, you know, Union County Jail, there probably are some people who end up being transferred to a maximum security and that where they stay for a long time. But I think our theory was Union County Jail, there it's more in and out, right? It's not long term. So there is a very good likelihood that most of these women will get out. And that's why it was so important for us to step in, right? To change the course of their lives once they get out of jail. But what if we could change the course of their lives while they're in jail and just set them up for wellness and mental wellness and and self-worth if, even if they're going to stay in jail because wouldn't that somehow better their lives and so i think ultimately i'd love to get into a maximum security prison into that maximum security prison and start providing um and again is that any coincidence at all that we went there and then it got changed to a women's prison and now we're doing this jail work but now that's a women's prison like right after we started doing the Union County Jail thing, I don't know. Sounds, I don't know. sounds to me like the universe has a plan. Yeah, it's fate. So, you know, the problem is we can have all these big plans and these dreams, but we are very short. You know, we're a small crew and there's only so much that we can do. The fact that Noemi, our counselor, does this when she's got a shelter full of people. And I mean, last year we provided, I don't even know, over well over a thousand hours of counseling. Um, to survivors, because it's also important to remember, you don't have to be staying in our shelter to get our services. So we've got in and, you know, shelter clients coming in and out all the time. Sometimes even shelter clients are still with their abuser, but they can't leave. They're not quite in that place where they can leave, but they know they need the help. And so we would have to, I mean, we'd have to hire more staff to do it. And so that's always the challenge is um, getting the, the right, not overwhelming our staff too much um with additional projects but we also you know we rely on government funding for you know a good amount of our money and that keeps getting cut so it's it's definitely a pipe dream but i've had a lot of pipe dreams that we've made come true here in this shelter so never say never no i wouldn't and there'll be more and 
for me, even from the outside, seeing how the awareness of what you do has grown, the awareness of your organization has grown, the ties that it has in our county and beyond. I'm sure I told you this. This probably was 2019. I was supposed to fly from Shreveport, Louisiana, back here to Charlotte. That flight, the last flight out of Shreveport got canceled, but I could still catch the red eye out of Dallas. So I rented a car, drove to Dallas to fly home out of Dallas that night because, you know, I'm not telling Brooke I'm not going to be home tonight. Right. Um, <laughs> and there were a group of people sitting next to me because, of course, that flight was delayed. There was a group of people sitting next to me that were talking about doing similar work that you do and your team do. They were coming to Charlotte. So I literally asked them if they were with Turning Point because at that point I had met you. I hadn't yeah. met your team yet. And one of the women looked at me and said, no, but do you know them? Like They had heard of your group. They had heard of the work that yeah. you in Dallas, Texas. So that was crazy. And it's true. I so love hopefully that. Hopefully is, is the work you do continues to grow and the reputation continues to grow. More of these opportunities from access to finances to staff and so forth continue to come to you because it is more than deserved. So in our brief conversation, you've mentioned the jail advocacy work. You've mentioned having women and children in your shelter. You've mentioned doing outreach counseling and work for women and children who are survivors or experiencing physical and sexual abuse who are outside of your shelter. You mentioned the outreach work that you do with high schools and teenagers around relationships. I'm guessing you probably do similar outreach work with younger kids about elementary abuse, <laughs> surviving abuse and those types of things. Two questions. What am I missing? And where do people go to learn more about the services your group provide that are so necessary? We, one of the most important things that I think a lot of people might be interested, a lot of business people might be interested in knowing is that, so during COVID, I was asked to create, and I never say no, it's, it's a problem. I'm, I have a very slight suspicion that you do the same thing. Um, I was asked to create a presentation about domestic violence in the workplace and how employers need to address that. And so I didn't really know a whole lot about it, but I spent about six months researching and creating this presentation that I ended up doing. I did it for the Human County or Union County Human Resource Association, ended up doing it for NC Works at a state conference. But that's a really good one. So many employers don't know that they have a legal obligation. They have certain legal obligations if they have an employee that is a victim of domestic abuse. Um, most employers, and I will say turning point even, did not have a policy surrounding employees and domestic violence and sexual assault and stalking. We didn't even have one. Oops. So I go through in the presentation, I actually teach employers what are kind of the, some of the, the key points that you want to have in a policy that you create and what are what are your obligations, both legally and ethically for your employees. That's another big one. But yeah, we're also in the elementary schools doing um, child sexual abuse prevention as well. I always have to mention our stores. We have uh, our second chance boutiques. They are about 34% of our operating revenue. So they're a really big piece of the puzzle for us. Um, we have two stores in Monroe, one in Waxhaw, one in Indian Trail. People donate gently used items. And um, we not only do they does it provide you know, funding for our programs, but our clients get to shop there for anything that they need. So we do have people show up literally in their bare feet and we're making sure that they have all everything they need. And then when they move out on their own, we're able to supply them with, you know, household items and, and all that good stuff too. So 
that's another big one. But yeah, the prevention and outreach is big for us and really trying to be what we call an agency without walls. You know, where are the survivors and how do we get to them? So we're really trying hard to break into some of these um, these demographics that typically don't ask for a lot of help and we don't want people suffering in silence. So we're really working hard on that as well. So trying to really break into like the Latino community because that's like, that community, they take care of each other, they take care of their own and they don't like to ask for help. And so we're really trying to make sure, you know, but we've had a lot of Spanish speaking clients. So I think it's working. I think what we're doing is working. Um, but yeah, I think you, I think you covered everything else. Lucky guesses. How do people find you? How do they get a hold of you? Whether they're businesses that you mentioned, whether other people who are looking to help you share your story, whether people who want to donate and fundraise, and of course, people who need your services. So our website, we redid our website. It was a COVID project. So it's very interactive, very up to date. And you know, you can you can access everything you need to know about Turning Point on our website. So it's turningpointnc.org. And we have a list of all of our volunteer opportunities. I'm sure anybody, if you're familiar with nonprofit work, we are very, very heavily reliant on volunteers. We could not do what we do without them. And there's so many fun opportunities. If you want to actually work in the shelter with clients, if you want to do um, a meal for the shelter clients, if you want to do beautification projects around our facilities, that's always really helpful. Um, and we also have, there's obviously there's a donate section on there. We take everything, crypto, we will, you can put us in your will, your donor advised funds, we'll take it however you want to drop off a bag of pennies on our front step, we'll take it. Um, we don't, no, no donation is too big or small. And um, what else is on there? Everything's on there. It's very interactive. You can find out anything you should know on it. And are you on social media or anywhere where people we can are. find people? Yes, we're on LinkedIn. It's Turning Point UC um, for all of them. That's our handle. So Facebook, Instagram. We don't do Twitter as much. I think we really need to. But um, yeah, we're on all of them. LinkedIn. And we have fundraisers throughout the year. You can we do we always need supplies. You'll see wish lists on our website. As you can imagine, we're twenty four seven. So we need paper towels, paper plates you know, all toilet paper, all that good stuff, snacks for the kiddos, juice boxes, you name it, we need it. And we need it at the treehouse too, because the treehouse really is, that visit for a child is about four to six hours. And so we like to make sure we keep the kids fed and um, and comfortable while they're there. So we always need snacks for that too. Um, yeah. And so people know what the treehouse is for. That's where children go because... Sexual abuse, physical abuse, or witnesses to violence. And so the CAC model was really developed because once a child would disclose abuse without a children's advocacy center, they were just re-traumatized because they're telling, you know, they tell the teacher and then the teacher's like, okay, tell the principal and I'll tell your guidance counselor and I'll tell this police officer and I'll go tell DSS. So you're telling a bunch of strangers your story, numerous different locations. Children would be confused, like, why are they asking me to tell my story over and over again? Do I recant my story now? Do I do I embellish to get somebody to believe me because they keep asking me? And so we're doing the forensic interviews, the medical exams, everything under our roof. And that forensic interview is live streamed into a conference room. And that's where D the DA's office will be, law enforcement, DSS, whoever needs to see that interview is seeing it live stream. And that child is being interviewed in a professional way developmentally appropriate, non-leading. Um, and then that the, the multidisciplinary team can see it where they need to see it um, and ask questions if they need more information from the interviewer. They can say, hey, make sure kind of let's 
ask about this without being leading. It's very important. That interview can also be used as evidence in court, um, which is really important because sometimes these things go to trial three years later and the jury needs to see in real time what that child, you know, where that child was in their life and what they disclosed. And so um, it's really, it's, it's critical. And we're the only ones doing it in Union County. So law enforcement and DSS refer all of their child abuse cases to us. And they're coming to us and obviously counseling for the family and the victim, whatever they need. In that treehouse environment, it's called the treehouse because it's set up to be in an environment that makes children comfortable. So it is, it's not a sterile police interrogation room or principal's office or doctor's office. It's right. all of those, all of those conversations and goals are accomplished in an environment where the child can be a child to the extent that they're capable at that moment in time, which is yeah, really very child friendly, very child friendly and centered around that child. They get to take whatever they want with them. We always give them something, a blanket, a toy. We always have like other the shoes again, make that family whole. They can help their child heal. So if there's transportation barriers, whatever that looks like for them, we make that family whole entirely because they simply cannot help their child heal if they're struggling and wondering when their next, you know, where their next meal is going to come from. It's just not possible. So it's not just about the the abuse and that disclosure and everything subsequent to that and the judicial process. It's also about healing the whole entire family. They can support their child. The other thing that's really important to teach a parent is how does how do children react to trauma? Because it's again, children, parents don't understand certain behaviors. And certain, you know, and certain things that children might do who have been victimized, you have to educate the family on how to best help their child. And a lot of that, you know, really revolves around how that child has reacted to their trauma and what you can do to best support them. All right. We've already gone over the time that I said that we would take, but I can't let that go. So without going like another half an hour, I don't want to steal from the rest of your day. Can you please give us a quick rundown on how children may react or respond to trauma? Definitely what you want to look for is sudden kind of sudden loss of interest in the things that they used to love to do. Um, Self-harm, really seeking attention. That's another big one, like really needy for attention. Um, Poor grades, you know, some of the more obvious ones, poor grades, substance use. Um, sexual abuse is really, um, children can show, you know, odd sexual behaviors that really aren't age appropriate, um, you know, things that they shouldn't know about. Obviously there's also physical signs of sexual abuse, but, you know, inappropriate behavior for a child in their age, you know, sexually is obviously a huge red flag. Um, what else? Um, I just had to go through this for WBTV the other day, and it's, it's escaping me now, but those are the big ones. Um, if they show fear of going to a specific place that they used to enjoy going to, that's a huge red flag. Um, and, you know, parents of kids with special needs need to be really in tune to that, too, because kids that have special needs and can't verbalize um, that they've been harmed in any way, you need to be really in tune to kind of those types of things that they express a sudden fear about a certain place or location or a person. Um you know, and it's just so important to teach children that um, it's not their fault and that because child abuse is usually at the hands of somebody they know, right? So the whole stranger danger thing is out the window because you want them to tell a stranger if they're being abused. So you can't teach them stranger danger because most of the time, way well over 95% of the time, it's somebody that they know that has groomed them that they trust. And so 
that really um, also impacts their their desire to tell because they love that person and don't want them to get in trouble. Mm-hmm. I just went off on a tangent on that, but that's an important piece of the puzzle too. You know, it's a critically important tangent. So we're going to give time to that. We'll make time for that. And I'm guessing from a responding standpoint, um, responding with curiosity, responding with patience, responding with tone of voice and nonverbal behavior that doesn't set off alarms. So even something as simple as my son accidentally let the dog out last night and the dog ate the cat's food. It was my fault for putting the cat's food down too early. Like, this is on me. But literally when I turned around, I was like, hey, Gabe, he's not in trouble. But his immediate reaction was defensiveness. And I had to, you know, work. we laugh and it's no big deal, yeah. right? But if, if that's how kids are going to respond to the fear of being in trouble because of how they were approached to something when the dog ate the cat's food, who cares? Imagine what it would be when somebody who they care about is doing these things to them. So responding with curiosity, with patience, with verbal and nonverbal behavior that are encouraging, that don't make people feel defensive, maybe even in an environment where it's easier for the kids to talk. It's not, hey, come sit down at the kitchen table and tell me what's going on. All of these things could be important to get them to open up and begin to start sharing. So I will say the most critical thing if a child discloses abuse is uh, the number one thing, and I said it before, you have to believe them. And there are studies that show that the reaction of the first adult that they tell impacts everything that happens after that and how well they heal and move on from that trauma. So that's the number one thing. The other thing that we teach people is... um, don't interview the child. Don't get a lot of information. You want to ask very basic questions. Who, what, where? That's it. Because what happens is that that child, if you start somewhat interviewing that child, it can impact the forensic interview that we do. Mm-hmm. And if that child's kind of already been interviewed, it, it can impact how we get information from them and then whether or not it's usable and if that case goes to trial. And so we tell people, get as little information as possible, who, what, where, that's it. And let that be it. And you make that report. The other thing people have to know is that every adult in North Carolina, by law, is a mandated reporter. So we are all, as adults, lawfully obligated to report suspected abuse if we we think we have seen signs of abuse. Um, And so that's really important for people to know as well. All amazing. And now I'm wishing we had two more hours to get into the details of this because it's so critical for people to know. So if I haven't driven you crazy, maybe we can do this again another time and and take some some different different avenues with the conversation. Just a a quick personal anecdote. When we first started working together on different projects and I went to your website and realized that you had an escape button on your website, a button that people can click and immediately takes them to another website to cover up the fact that they were on your website to begin with in an odd way was one of the little things that let the seriousness of what you do set in. I mean, just from my background, Tans, gently understanding the seriousness of what you do and the critical nature of everything that you do. But the fact that your team had the foresight to put that eject button on there, on your website, so people who might still be living with their abuser or with their abuser, but are working up the courage and the power to start taking those first steps have that ability to get out real quick if that abuser comes around the corner. Just those little things to me, not only speak to the seriousness of the problem, but speak to the depths of your team's commitment. So for the people that are listening, if you're here in North Carolina and certainly have the opportunity to to interact with Jesse and Turning Point, I, 
I do. My wife doesn't certainly can't vouch for the, for them enough. But even nationwide or internationally, any nonprofit, but especially those that are going out of their way to take care of victims without a voice in any context, it's so important. So thank you for the amazing work that you and your team do. I look forward to continuing to talk with you and continuing to learn from you um, and continuing to put up with your husband too. I'm kidding, Treg. You're awesome. We're going to have a conversation soon too. But seriously, thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much for all of your insights. Really powerful stuff today. Look forward to seeing you again soon. Thank you. Once again, Jesse, thank you so much for taking the time to join us today and share so many powerful lessons and examples from your background and your career, from your experience as a mother and your family to all you and your team do at Turning Point and beyond. There are so many powerful lessons for us in there, not just in our business lives and our personal lives, but even looking out for some of the people who may be victims in our lives. Some of the things that you mentioned about what to look for if kids have been in different situations, so valuable for us to hear and understand. I can't thank you enough for taking the time and coming on and sharing that with us today. And of course, thank you all for being here and listening to the conversation. I really appreciate it. One more time on the way out, we do have to thank our sponsors again, Humantel. Go to humantel.com and enter the code of 25 if you're looking to continue to develop your ability to understand what people are likely thinking and feeling by accurately evaluating the shifts in their facial expressions and body language. Emotional Intelligence Magazine, ei-magazine.com. Go check them out and see all of the emotional intelligence resources they're gathering over there. And of course, the International Association of Interviewers. Head over to certifiedinterviewer.com, especially if you're a professional investigator, and check out all the resources, the events, the training, the legal updates, everything they have going on over there, and see if that organization is right for you as you continue to develop your investigations career. Thank you all very much for being here and taking the time to watch the conversation. Please do all the things the algorithms ask. Help Jesse and all of our guests get the exposure they so richly deserve. Please like, please share, tell your friends about it, all the things that we do online. And of course, share us your feedback. What did you like? What did you not like? What would you like to see more of? And please, if you know anyone that you think would be a great guest, send them our way. We'd love to hear their perspective on listening and communication as well. Please stay safe. Take care of each other. We'll see you next time.